0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Farmers have been pushing back against the government lately and what they call a tsunami of environmental regulations, and that urban-rural divide seems to be deepening. So a good time then for a documentary series all about the future of farming from a filmmaker who's got deep roots in it.
2: Growing up in rural Southland, I remember when this was nothing but sheep and beef farms. But over my lifetime, I experienced this dramatic transition to dairy. When I was born, there was only 40,000 dairy cows here, and now there's over 600,000.
1: We'll hear more from him shortly, and we'll hear how two big name broadcasters were happy for once to have the broadcasting watchdog all up in their business. But first, two Kiwi competitors at the Tokyo Olympics made history and heaps of headlines this past week, but for very different reasons.
0: Can they do it? So Lisa is also in the final of the K2, as we just mentioned, with Caitlin Regal. That's in under an hour. Stay with us, you won't want to miss any of that. More reaction to this gold medal next.
1: Was TVNZ's Olympic anchor Tony Street last Tuesday, just after kayaker Lisa Carrington had won her third Olympic gold medal, and that made her New Zealand's most gilded female Olympian ever. And the reason TVNZ busted out Beyonce, telling us it's girls run the world, to take us into the ad break.
3: It's hot up
1: Later that night, Tom Walsh's shot put competition with the other big guys was ushered in with the soundtrack from Madagascar 2. Now, by that point, Lisa Carrington had won another gold in the K2. Then we got a bronze in the boxing and a silver in the K49 sailing, during which Stephen Beaver-Donald on the new sports network SENZ had to remind himself and the listeners that were actually on the radio and not on TV. That was dramatic. <laughs> it is very dramatic, mate. <laughs> it's great. Again, we can't say great viewing because...
4: Our poor listeners aren't, aren't watching this.
1: And after all that, News Hub's site breathlessly reported that New Zealand was third on the medals table. That's the one for medals per capita, behind only Bermuda and San Marino. Now it's only countries obsessed with punching above their weight that ever look for those rankings, though weirdly, they don't say as much about the medals per competitor table. With twice as many competitors as Ireland, which has roughly the same population, we languish in the mid-30s in that ranking, punching about our weight with the likes of Denmark and Croatia. Another gold on this marvellous day of canoeing. Olympic champions, New Zealand. Well, as we now know, Lisa Carrington went on to become the goat in the boat and winning more gold medals on the water to become our most decorated Olympian full stop, never mind the gender. Though gender was the agenda for most of the media who turned up to the women's super heavyweight weightlifting on Monday evening. Big lift for Laurel Hubbard. Needs this to stay in the competition. No, it's gone out the back door.
3: What a shame. What a shame. Well, that will be the end of Laurel Hubbard's competition. And she bows out, thanks to the crowd, for their support.
1: That was indeed the end of Laurel Hubbard's Games, but not the end of the media noise around her. While she didn't even come close to a medal, she made more global headlines than any other Kiwi Olympian. Even though these Olympics are fan-free, Laurel Hubbard still drew a crowd on Monday, among them RNZ's Maya Burry, who explained it was almost all media.
3: And when she stepped onto the platform to perform her first lift, the sound of the cameras clicking it really was unlike anything I've ever heard before. And I think it does give you a bit of an indication of the significance of this moment in Olympic history.
1: And among the camera-carrying crowd was the BBC's chief sports correspondent, Dan Rowan. <laughs> It was an appearance that made Olympic history. Laurel Hubbard may not
0: have won a medal here today, but this was still a major milestone for trans athletes. And regardless of her performance, she will remain at the very centre of one of the most divisive issues in sport. One that is forcing it to confront the tension between inclusivity and fairness.
1: Well, that question of fairness was on the minds of all of the reporters, too, though reporters were reluctant to ask the question on their minds straight out when confronting the actual competitors.
4: I was wondering, you know, what you felt about that and what you felt that, that it took place in, in your sport.
1: However, the bronze medalist on the night, Sarah Robles from the US, made it pretty clear they would get no comment from her. No, thank you. And on its live blog, Stuff warned its readers here that it would not publish any comments other than acceptable comments regarding her performance lifting weights that night. Now, while this issue was divisive, TVNZ's reporter Fena Owen pointed out this irony before the event.
4: Both those vehemently for and against Olympic trans athletes really want her to win.
1: And after it, press journalist Philip Matthews made a similar point.
4: Ironically, the people most disappointed she didn't win are those who opposed her being there. And it was the very definition of a
1: lose-lose situation for Laurel Hubbard herself. And that's something an expert and author on transgender rights and policy, Professor Jamie Taylor at the University of Toledo, told NewsHub's reporter Michael O'Keefe back in June.
2: I don't usually go in the media. Because I don't want to get attacked. Perhaps that's the reason why Hubbard hasn't done media so since she was so named in the Olympic team earlier this week. If you could say something to Laurel, what would it be? I, I understand why you're, you're quiet, because that, that's the way that I've been throughout most of my professional life as well. Much like you, I show up and do my job, so I get it. Because the, the scrutiny that you face is, is pretty, pretty high.
1: Well, it certainly was this week. And Hub's Michael O'Keefe, there was one of few reporting on Laurel Hubbard's situation who actually included an authentic trans voice. Now, some in the media though formed their opinions just off the top of their heads. I've missed that one. So, so what, who is she? She's a um... she's a transgender
0: right. uh, weightlifting in the women's category. She was born a man. Yes. Right. Yeah, and she's very good. Oh, she shouldn't be be there. If you're born a man, you can't compete in the women's.
3: I just, I just can't see how it's
0: that fair. is a complicated debate that I don't think in 30 seconds or less we were able to do justice. I prefer this to be less. Yeah,
1: but how can you be born a man and then compete in the women's section? News Hub's Duncan Garner there with an on-the-spot opinion back in March 2019 on the AM show, though he hadn't changed his on-air opinion after Hubbard's failure on Monday night. I've got an issue with her being in the women's action. Yeah, she was born a man
0: correct? Yes. Okay. So she has muscle memory and traits of
1: man in her strength. Yeah. I don't think it's fair. And I don't think it's right. But this time in the AM studio, there was a veteran sports journalist, Brendan Telfer, able to drop in a fact or two.
3: I heard what you've said just a few moments ago. Well, I'm just for the record, I'm no doctor or scientist, but I have interviewed enough of experts in these fields Mm. and time and time again they tell me which makes sense is that when you transition from a male to a female you undergo certain medical procedures which I can't talk with any great uh, expertise on but what they effectively do is they reduce the testosterone level of this Mm. transgender person so Lauren Harbord although she was a male weightlifter in her junior years as a a male has lost all of that strength can't you you see that? No, No I can't see that well, she has.
1: But that's not to say there aren't legitimate questions to explore and grey areas for sports journalists to explain, though some who tried to do that were criticised for it. New Zealand Herald sports editor at large Dylan Cleaver said this in an opinion piece last Monday before Laurel Hubbard's competition.
4: The legitimacy of her presence at Tokyo is complex, and those who dismiss it as she's only playing by the rules laid down by the International Olympic Committee could be accused of answering the wrong question. Even the IOC's medical and science director has said the current guidelines were no longer fit for purpose and that the science has moved on. And
1: that is true, and it's the reason why, Dylan Cleaver said, many New Zealanders, including himself, admired Laurel Hubbard, yet remained uncomfortable or unsure about her competing. Well, after Laurel Hubbard tried and failed to lift those weights on Monday, Daily Mail sports writer Raith Al-Samari summed up her situation like this.
4: One has to admire Hubbard and sympathise too, because she stood at the middle of a frenzied intersection between sport, science and gender politics.
1: And it's all the more remarkable in that case that the least frenzied and most economical voice of all in the media was that of Laurel Hubbard herself. In the obligatory post-competition interviews she was honest about being overwhelmed by the Olympic occasion on Monday and when Sky Sports' Ricky Swinnell asked her about the second lift which was flagged as a foul by two judges but not all three, Laurel Hubbard had no complaints. Weightlifting does have rules, of course like any sport
0: and uh, if I've broken or contravened those rules then uh, it must have been a no lift.
1: And then inevitably came questions about her eligibility.
0: How are you able to, to block out the periphery, the interest and in just, just but you get out there, perform and perform well for New Zealand? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure it's possible for any person to really block out everything that's happening in the world, Um, but uh, you just do what
1: you can and get on with it. And in a subsequent press conference with reporters where Laurel Hubbard was clearly uncomfortable, she showed a combination of self-awareness and self-deprecation that's not always evident in our sports people or indeed just about anyone who finds themselves in public life.
0: I think I told someone that I'm looking forward to my career as a pub quiz question or a trivial pursuit card. That might sound slightly facetious, but there is a kernel of truth in that. Um, I've never been involved in sport because I'm interested in publicity or profile. Uh, and so uh, if it means that I now begin to descend into graceful obscurity, then uh, I'm OK with that.
1: Now, this wasn't Laurel Hubbard's first big competition on the big stage. This may be her last. But there's little chance of this trailblazer fading into obscurity, no matter how much or how little she engages with the media from now on. And even though she never sought to be a spokesperson, this response, when asked rather awkwardly for her message to supporters and all New Zealanders, is also one we'll probably be hearing again.
0: I think the world is changing, and there are opportunities for people to be out in the world and and do things just as any other person would do. And so if there's one thing I'd like to pass on, it's this. Life is difficult. There are disappointments. I know I certainly have some today, as uh, do we all. But uh, if you just keep pressing on, it does get better.
1: And on the subject of pressing on, a more successful Olympian than Laurel Hubbard, rower Eric Murray, made this point on the AM show last Tuesday.
0: We should sort of be celebrating the fact that
2: she is a trailblazer because this isn't going away. If we look at it, and we're only probably what forty years ago, where we were sitting here in sport, going, "Oh, are they going to let women compete in our events? This is a male sport," you know. So we've we've got we're in that conversation at the moment where trans athletes aren't going away. So we've just got to figure out how they fit into the uh, equation,
1: which Mm -hmm. is sport. that conversation he spoke of there has often been a shouting match when it's about Laurel Hubbard with lots of ignorance and overreaction turning up the volume. Laurel Hubbard was a catalyst for it but also maybe a calming influence. This week, YouTube kicked the Sky News Australia TV channel off its platform for posting videos airing misinformation about COVID vaccines. It didn't say which ones, though it recently hired host Alan Jones, formerly a veteran talk radio shock jock, and he recently had to issue an on-air correction for claims about mortality rates that were completely wrong.
3: 0.2% fatalities put the Delta strain on a par with the average flu season.
1: Pretty humiliating for Alan Jones there, as it was for a news channel like Sky News Australia, which airs on Sky TV here as well, to be sanctioned by a huge misinformation amplifier like YouTube. Hayden Donnell took a look at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch, last Wednesday on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And last Wednesday was also the day that the broadcasting company MediaWorks released a searching review of its workplace culture. Six allegations of sexual assault were revealed and what was described as a discriminatory
4: boys' club culture, as Hayden told Karen Hay on Midweek Media Watch one staff member put it this way there is an inner circle and females don't get let into that circle apparently one manager saying only hire hot referring to female applicants for roles and uh boys this is why you don't hire mums i guess that's uh might there might be the same person there who said don't hire a female as she'll get knocked up in five minutes so there seems to be uh, a bias against women because they might get pregnant, which is actually illegal. Uh, Respondents also reported repeatedly hearing derogatory terms, now sexually explicit terms, Uh, used in the office and there were actually allegations of racial discrimination and racist language as well. One staff member reported hearing a senior executive talking about why a station wasn't getting many commercial ad bookings and he said that that's because brown people don't have any money.
1: There was a lot more in that review and you can hear Hayden talking about it last Wednesday in Midweek Media Watch. In the stuff papers this weekend veteran journalist and columnist Rosemary McLeod said a boys club culture was par for the course when she was a young reporter. You had to be there to explain it, she wrote, and you're lucky if you weren't. MediaWorks Culture Review is by far the most comprehensive airing yet of any New Zealand media company's internal problems. QC Maria Dew spent half a year on it, and more than 500 current and former staff were consulted, either personally or by survey. The day the report came out last Wednesday, it led the news on News Hub at 6 on TV Channel 3, where they would have found it especially confronting, as Mike McRoberts explained.
0: MediaWorks is the owner of many of the country's radio stations, and until recently,
1: three.
3: The company issued a public apology, and as Karen Rutherford reports, some victims wonder whether anyone will ever be made accountable.
1: But as Karen Rutherford went on to point out, no one was prepared to be accountable to the media last Wednesday. News Hub, which was formerly owned by MediaWorks, asked for an interview. We got a pre-recorded statement.
4: We strongly support the findings. The review is an important step here for MediaWorks and it's the catalyst for us to generate long-term culture change.
1: And no other senior executive, past or present, has had anything more to say publicly since Wednesday either. The Herald's Wellington business editor, Hamish Rutherford, reported this weekend the directors of the company were also refusing to answer any questions. The company requested questions in writing for Chair Jack Matthews, which a spokesperson then declined on his behalf. And Hamish Rutherford also reported that Michael Anderson, who was both the chief executive and a board member during the period covered by the due report, didn't respond to his request for comment at all. And Michael Anderson's also incidentally one of the experts currently examining the business case for a new public media entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ. Now Maria Dew's summary of the report says many women feared for their careers when coming forward and having spoken to some that did, TVNZ's Kristen Hall told TVNZ One News viewers this. Some former staff that I spoke to today say because the alleged perpetrators haven't been named here there's concerns about accountability and it's pretty hard for
4: them to move forward and have any closure because of that.
1: Now anyone who does name names at this point could fall foul of defamation laws without watertight evidence. Right now, reporters covering ongoing sexual assault and rape allegations in Australia's Parliament are urging their social media followers not to name a 26-year-old man who's just been charged by police because that could compromise further investigation and a possible trial. And it's worth remembering also that what's been released publicly by MediaWorks this week was just a summary of the findings. Much of the worst conduct highlighted in Maria Dew's report is reported to have occurred at the company's boundary-pushing music stations. Social media accounts of the outlets and some people rumoured to be involved have also been made private lately and had comments turned off in recent days. And some discussions in online forums elsewhere, like Reddit, have been deleted. But whether anyone is held accountable for all this in the end is still an open question. Maria Dew's report says four separate incidents of alleged misconduct raised by people who came forward have been independently investigated, and she herself has referred on one case of sexist and bullying conduct by a manager and one of sexual harassment by a work colleague, while the complainants themselves are considering their options. But she added that several other matters that could have been referred for investigation haven't been because complainants didn't feel comfortable coming forward. MediaWorks Chair Jack Matthews did tell the Herald by text message this weekend the board accepts the findings of the report and supports the culture change process. But as Hayden Donnell pointed out in Midweek MediaWatch this week, in her introduction, Maria Dew QC indicated that some of the management didn't acknowledge the problem.
4: She said nearly everyone she talked to talked about some toxicity in the culture, but some didn't. Generally MediaWorks managers who decided that the people who were complaining soon just weren't cut out. For the industry, she wanted to (laughs) acknowledge that those people might have some difficulty accepting it's a problematic culture, but it was a problematic culture.
1: And in an article pondering how things got so bad at MediaWorks, The Herald's social issues reporter Katie Harris, who's investigated harassment and bullying at all major media companies lately, said those in power at MediaWorks appear to have lost sight of how to run a company and treat their employees correctly. But if the boys club assumed that no one would find out what went on under that glass ceiling or would care about it much if they did, they now know that was wrong. And as for the assumption that they weren't accountable, well it remains to be seen if that happens within the company or in the media. One of the big political moves this week was a limited quarantine-free travel bubble with Samoa, Tonga and Vanuatu to ease labour shortages. And cynics would say that came hard on the back of an adverse political opinion poll last weekend, which reflected a lack of action on that issue, among others. Several industries have long been crying out for more workers to come in from overseas – But not all of those who might benefit from the new bubble were happy.
3: Dairy farmers and nurses say they're struggling to fill labour shortages whilst trying to keep skilled workers in the country. RSE workers from Samoa, Tonga and Vanuatu will be granted quarantine-free access to fill spots in the horticulture and viticulture sectors. But Dairy New Zealand says farmers are feeling ripped off
1: with worker shortages in the thousands. TVNZ's midday news on Monday and just last month farmers hit the streets of towns and cities up and down the country in the biggest national protest for years and as we heard here on Media Watch, media coverage of that made it clear just how unhappy they felt about the government and specifically what they called a tsunami of regulations created by its environmental policies. There's too many restrictions being put on us and um, I've just had enough yeah, that's it I would say had enough too and, and the unappreciation of farming, not appreciating what we're actually doing. We are, we aren't, it's not like we're doing nothing. But it seems whatever farmers are doing isn't bringing down greenhouse gas emissions from our dairy farms. Last Thursday, RNZ's morning report began like this.
4: Kia ora kō, Susie Ferguson If I whaia today on RNZ National. Greenhouse gas emissions from dairy farms increased to an all-time high despite emissions from dairy cows
1: themselves dropping. This week, Stuff's climate reporter Olivia Wanan took a look at just-released submissions to the Climate Change Commission's report on how we can cut our carbon emissions by 2050 to meet our international obligations. And she found both Beef and Lamb and Dairy New Zealand had said that the commission was far too ambitious in its plan to produce similar amounts of meat and milk, but use 15% fewer animals. Meanwhile, there's also increasing interest in the media in things that might work.
3: Mitigating our agricultural emissions is an ongoing process, but the development of a methane vaccine could be a game-changer.
4: Climate change isn't a black-and-white issue, but reducing emissions
1: requires solutions from some of our biggest contributors. TVNZ Seven Sharp Show last week on homegrown efforts to cut cows' methane emissions, and two days later on RNZ National, 9 to Noon looked at a push to do the same for sheep. Uh,
0: well, We've obviously um, been breeding... Um, studs and performance recording for 53 odd years and um, part of that selection is always looking for traits that are relevant, economic, even make our clients farming more efficient or easier.
1: Southland farmer Leon Black there who selectively breeds sheep to reduce methane emissions. Well this month TVNZ has launched a documentary series all about the future of farming and the environment made by another native of Southland who has roots in farming there Dairy farming, to be specific.
2: Growing up in rural Southland, I remember when this was nothing but sheep and beef farms. But over my lifetime, I experienced this dramatic transition to dairy. When I was born, there was only 40,000 dairy cows here, and now there's over 600,000. I really don't remember this cow on top of the tavern. <laughs> to be fair, I don't really remember many cows around here growing up.
1: It's Baz MacDonald, the maker of Milk and Money, a new six-part series for the youth-focused digital TVNZ platform, RE. It costs $360,000 of public money to make, and it's also now available in full on TVNZ On Demand. Several economists and ecologists and environmentalists feature in his series, insisting that dairying is dirty and not sustainable as it stands, and the likes of Fonterra's boss and farming industry representatives remind him just how important it is to the economy nonetheless, and that more than people might think is being done to clean up its act. So far, so familiar in coverage of the dirty dairying issue. But Baz MacDonald also sits down in the series with farmers themselves to hear them out. We're not some massively evil group of people destroying New Zealand. We certainly don't get it right all the time, but we're certainly heading in the right direction. And watching all this over six parts, you do wonder why such a significant, sensitive and long-running issue has not been documented by a series of this scale before. So, having finally made one, I asked Baz MacDonald why.
2: Yeah, it is surprising. I think there's been a few different kinds of sort of archival environmental reporting in Aotearoa, and obviously a lot of books. This is an issue. And many times I said this to myself as we were covering, I was like, God, I should have just written a book. (laughs) But the thing is, is that, um, you know, there's been lots of books written about this sort of thing, and a subset of New Zealand society reads them and has discussions in their own little bubbles, but we needed something that could reach a much broader audience. And I thought a documentary was the way to do that, so not only were we thinking about you know a traditional formatted 20 ish minute episode, but then also companion articles, you know being able to break our graphic explainers out and put them out as their own thing and episodes, teasers, all of those sorts of things were a big part about what we thought about
1: at the time, I imagine the farming lobby would have been a bit wary of having a whole series devoted to this for a youth focused digital platform funded from the public purse. Did you encounter sort of hostility to the project from the people that you needed to talk to who represent the industry?
2: When we came into researching this project, it seems like the industry was at a turning point of their messaging. And actually, no, I think we actually entered researching and producing this series at the same time that the industry sort of said, you know what, we're going to be more progressive with our conversations about what it is we do and... What the impacts are and what the barriers are to to mitigating or changing those. There is still a lot of downplaying, but it's not denial straight out anymore. It seems like a, a slight pivot's been made towards downplaying but acknowledging. Peter Fraser says in the first episode as well. He's like, we we've taken on so many economic endeavors in New Zealand that we've just run into the ground you know like we cashed in our kauri, we cashed in our seals we cashed in our whales we can't cash in our environment like we have to we have to make decisions that are going to give it long longevity both economically and environmentally yeah he
1: saw water as underpinning that didn't he was yeah. pretty much monetizing the water absolutely but, but in terms
2: of I just don't see that there's another way. We need to at least start on that journey. Let's acknowledge that change needs to happen and then make feasible steps to make that happen.
1: In the past, I think we've seen farming and agricultural lobby groups have wanted to engage with the media kind of on their own terms, even running, for example, uh, there was 2018 um, DairyNZ and NZMe, the owners of New Zealand Herald and lots of radio stations launched this Clear Vision campaign. So they they were kind of co-opting or even hiring the media to help put out their message um, that they were working on clean water. Uh, We've seen several other things. Just more recently, um, the MediaWorks company that has a rural radio show says they formed a partnership with the Dairy Women's Network. And they said part of this would be that news breaks from the Dairy Network would be fed into the programme. So you coming at them with a kind of independently-minded six-part series, that must have worried some of them.
2: Agribusiness is a business, and... A successful one. They have a lot of resources to message, to advertise, to market. And they do that. Like if you look at what the marketing campaigns of the dairy industry have been in the last couple of years, the same period in which we were producing this, they're all focused on how good they are for the environment, how good they are for communities. And so when you're making a package like this, which is considering the industry, there's voices that wouldn't be heard unless we included them. And so that was definitely something that I thought about when we were building it, while at the same time making sure that the industry had its say where it needed to.
1: Yeah, in a way it seems sinister, doesn't it, when big groups like, say, Dairy NZ or Beef and Lamb, they'll do whole content-based media packages and yet on our program uh, we spoke to for example the editor of king country news heather carston i mean she even said uh, to me this
2: the dailies the the the, the you know, tv they, they don't send people out there to actually see and feel and hear what's going on so this kind of thing takes them by surprise they're very much on the back foot i believe
1: do farmers and the groups that represent them have almost every right to spend money and try and persuade the public and try and put those images of people on the land and what they're doing out there into the public in these these uh, you know quite slick and expensive campaigns?
2: Certainly, and obviously. Right now with the Public Interest Journalism Fund, the government's trying to recorrect what we're seeing, which is less reporting happening out of our regions. And absolutely, I think that we need to bolster that. And I think that having reporters in these regions is is pivotal, not only to highlighting the good stuff that's happening, but also to see day to day the not so good stuff. I don't know if... PR marketing campaigns is the balance to that. Um, I think probably more reporting from, you know, rural newspapers would be would be the answer. And the industry isn't really taking kindly to being witnessed. I mean, if you think back to some of the sort of undercover reporting that's happened, you know, back in 2015 with um, the Bobby reporting through Sunday or, you know, even in the last couple of years, there were these hidden camera uh, exposés done on treatment of of cows and dairy sheds by contract
1: farmers – Uh, How, though, you you mentioned that you thought uh, your series was fair and balanced, but how did you test that? What was being said and even the, the sort of factual information that you decided to pick out and present?
2: There's obviously processes that media go through. You know, it's lawyer checked. We had a fact checker. And there's going to be things that slip through the cracks, like one that's been highlighted to us is that there's a piece of scripting in the first episode which says milk prices are 4 to $8 per litre, which well, I meant to say milk solid per milk solid. Um, and that's the kind of thing that farmers will absolutely click into and say, well, like, oh, this is rubbish. But we're happy to have those conversations about where those slip-ups are. But generally, everything is thoroughly vetted.
1: But did you have to make certain compromises because of the nature of what you're doing? I mean, for example, um, just to pick on one thing, I think in episode two, dealing with water quality, there was a um, chart which says, you know, fish health, and there's a line going downwards, and cow numbers, Mm -hmm. the line going, you see the two cross over. No source on either axis. People who really know that this is complex and nuanced would be looking at that thinking, that's too simple.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair like a lot of the graphs and stuff you see animated are based on things that have been published by researchers and scientists and government organizations in New Zealand. Uh, That particular chart was based on two different graphs that we put together over the same time period. You could say, you know, there's no numbers on the X's and all of those kinds of things. And we're happy to
1: have those conversations. So do people want this? I mean, as we know, Country calendar outrates just about everything, which occasionally touches on the tough side of farming, the economics, and so on. It's not all about people on lifestyle blocks growing persimmons or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, so does that indicate there actually is an appetite for material um, such as yours that actually tackles the big stuff as well as uh, you know the colour of rural life, if I can put it like that?
2: I think so, but I think... The farmers were kind of right that like the majority of people use phrases or like discuss things that they don't actually understand the mechanisms of. Mm-hmm. You know, like the word intensification, for instance, or intensive, I feel like is one that gets bandied about a lot. Yeah. But if you were to survey most people who use it, they wouldn't actually understand the mechanics behind what they're talking about. I think Country Calendar has an audience already. And they are both specific and broad. I think Country Calendar is amazing, by the way. Kiwis want something, a resource, you know, that that allows them to have understanding of the things they need to have proper conversations. And I think that's what I want to see the media do going forward is is make sure that we're not just speaking in business jargon or speaking in um, farming jargon. And, you know, there's a lot of jargon involved in this industry.
1: And actually, finally, when... The farming lobby here is, OK, there's a publicly funded project here for a TVNZ youth-based digital platform. You turn up uh, with questions. They're probably thinking, oh, my God, here's some uh, bearded urban hipster uh, <laughs> going to produce some sort of woke environmentally <laughs> focused thing. And you have real roots in in farming and the actual dairy transition that you're talking about, right?
2: picking up the phone and hearing my thick southern accent probably was a bit reassuring to
1: people. You know, I I hadn't picked it up. Uh, (laughs) Sorry.
2: (laughs) Um, You know, it's funny, I saw a comment someone posted on one of our, our posts just today being like I think it's an Aucklander pretending to be a Southlander because it's it's too thick it's farcical <laughs> okay.
1: Now that is that is a bit unfair and having put the series out I mean all six episodes now available uh, in one go on TVNZ On Demand or on the, the ReNews website um, and now that it's out um, have the likes of Fonterra uh, or Beef and Lamb or Dairy NZ run the rule over it and come back with um, a series a set of grievances or are they broadly happy with uh, what you've put out?
2: I haven't heard back from either organisation yet and I'm more than open to discussing issues that they might have. And in fact... Um, I don't want to jump the gun here, but we're actually trying to develop at the moment a way to cap off the rollout of the series where we want to have a sort of town hall discussion that we live stream with farmers, with Dairy NZ, with myself as well, because I want to be held accountable for the story that we're telling, where we want to be in a farming community, maybe in the Waikato, so that farmers can come and voice their questions, queries, concerns. And so I hope that both Dairy NZ and Fonterra know that Our objective's always been to start a conversation. If they have questions, queries, concerns, corrections, all of those different things, we want to work with them on broadcasting those because this is not like a a shot across their bow. But let's use this as a platform to start a robust conversation about a sustainable
1: future for our rural communities, for our economy, for our environment. It's Baz McDonald, the maker of Milk and Money, a multimedia documentary series all about the future of farming and the environment. It's on the TBNZ digital platform, Re, along with articles all about the topics in the series, and the series is also available to watch in full on TBNZ On Demand. Now, Baz MacDonald had a lot more to say about the making of that series and how the media cover the controversies about farming and its future. You can hear all of that in the online version of the story. That's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Last Tuesday, RNZ was outflanked by a vocal anti-vaccination and anti-lockdown group, literally, kind of. The conspiracy-adjacent outfit was Voices for Freedom, which was co-founded by a former Advance NZ Party candidate and recently kicked off Facebook for spreading COVID-19 and vaccine misinformation. The group bought space on two big digital billboards on either side of the entrance to RNZ's Auckland HQ on Hobson Street and other locations in Auckland and the capital as well. And the messages on these billboards were mostly slogans opposing hate speech law reform. Now, RNZ was at pains to point out that it doesn't own those boards and it doesn't even own the building they're stuck to anymore either and in the end the Voices for Freedom ads weren't there for long anyhow. The ad company Lumo Digital Outdoor said they pulled the Voices for Freedom ads down as soon as they learned what the group was all about. In this week's midweek media watch Hayden also looked at a BSA complaint about TVNZ's Hillary Barry saying this on tvnz7 sharp show
3: get yourself vaccinated maybe
4: those who don't want to be vaccinated could jump on a ferry and go to the auckland islands for a few years and then when we've got rid of covid you can all come back <laughs> facebook's been telling me some very interesting information about stop it not this is the problem. vaccine this is the problem is if the problem.
3: you want to research research but make sure you read reputable
4: reports not facebook
1: Now at that time, back in February, one viewer complained those comments breached broadcasting standards by suggesting the vaccine's safety was almost without question and denigrating those with a different view. But this week, the Broadcasting Standards Authority decided the safety of the Pfizer vaccine has been well established, so it did not consider this to be a controversial issue for the purposes of balance. But Alan Jones, however, isn't the only talk radio host who's been pulled up for misleading his audience about COVID-19 death rates overseas. The Broadcasting Standards Authority also recently found News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking had done that too last year. Though on air last Monday, Mike Hosking couldn't quite remember the details. What was it, the Italian thing? So I
3: gave a COVID example from Italy and I, I misled by omission, which was unique. I'd never heard that before. I misled by omission thus indicating what level of omission is required before one doesn't mislead. Do I have to, on a live radio program, include all of at least? Anyway, it doesn't matter, so that, that was what
1: it was. Well, it is what it was, misleading broadcasting about mortality and COVID-19. But why was Mike Hosking even mentioning that last Monday? Well, because more recently, he said he's had a win from the BSA. As we heard last weekend here on Media Watch, someone else complained to the BSA about Mike Hosking calling Meghan Markle a hussy on the air back in March. And the BSA just recently found that wasn't a breach of standards. Normally
3: when I lose, the media's all over it because they hate me. And when I win, you won't hear a single thing. So congratulations to Radio New Zealand for running that yesterday in their Media Watch programme. Not that I've ever heard Media Watch, but I'm led to believe they do spend a lot of time on ZB and a lot of time on me
1: whining. Another sincerely held view there from Mike Hosking, who also told his listeners back in February that he doesn't listen to this program I noted with a
3: great deal of interest, I don't listen to Media Watch. Uh, but I looked it up especially
1: once we discovered the report. A shame may be that Mike Hosking doesn't listen, but perhaps he's just one of those people who doesn't like the sound of their own voice on the air. Anyway, he has indeed established that calling a woman that you don't know a hussy is fine in the right context. But Mike Hosking went on to say that the broadcasting watchdog is not doing a good job because they don't uphold most of the complaints they consider.
3: They didn't uphold anything. They sat there for God knows how many days on people who clearly had wasted their time.
1: Now, you'd think that Mike Hosking would be a little more upset if the BSA was sanctioning substandard broadcasts all the time. And on this, he should perhaps have a word with his bosses. The standards are set in consultation with media companies, and they abide by them because, without complaints bodies, they'd be spending a lot more time and money in court to resolve disputes, possibly paying out more when they slip up on important things, like, for example, the facts about COVID. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back again at the same time next weekend with more Media Watch here on RNZ National.